What's next for the war in Ukraine? Will it be resolved in the right way? Will the good guys win? Welcome to Constable Confidential. I'm Simon Constable. Joining us today is Robin Horsfall. He was a boy soldier at 15, a paratrooper at 17 in the SAS, the Special Air Service, the elites at 21, and also a Royal Marine sniper. And then he had many decades after that doing equally interesting stuff. And he's here to tell us about a lot of different things. Thank you for joining us, sir. Good morning, Simon. Nice to be here. You've just written a, a fantastic piece that you posted on LinkedIn, The Danger in 2024. And you go through this quite quite well. And I'm going to read a, a tiny bit from, from the top of it. And it says, everyone wants to hear something uplifting so they can begin the new year on a positive note. On the other hand, I want to use today to write something we can carry into the coming year to refresh our minds when we think, speak, or vote. And then you talk about the greatest threat to all our lives in 2024 rests with one individual. Now, you don't mention that individual, but can you go through the rest of this and, and tell us what this individual mm -hmm. is doing, who, you know, how he's thinking and why it's a danger? Yeah, I mean, the individual concerned, uh, I didn't mention in the piece because of um, it flags up um, abuse from trolls and cyber attacks, but it's Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is the greatest threat to uh, freedom of democracy uh, at the at the at the current time, um, he is uh, he tried to uh, mount a takeover uh, and to place himself in as the dictator of the United States of America. He has the uh, Republican Party in his thrall still, even though he's not in power. And there's a genuine danger that uh, he could become president of the United States again. And people need to be aware of that danger. And uh, especially the American people that are going to vote for him. A lot of American people will turn around and say, what's it got to do with you? You know, you don't, you're not an American, you don't live here. But what happens in the USA, especially in terms of the presidency, affects the whole world. They are the modern Rome. And um, we should all be very, very concerned that a unqualified, uh, incompetent, dangerous, brutal human being um, with no political qualifications and no formal educational qualifications of any standing should once again return to the White House. Now, one of the things he has quite often done is praised people who have basically a strongman attitude who are ruling countries, some close to actually being dictators, some actual dictators. Is that part of the issue that he's admiring people who perhaps those with a, 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 a liberal background, and I don't mean liberal politically, I mean liberal in terms of free thinking attitude, would not like. Is that part of that? Well, General Milley called him a wannabe uh, dictator, and that's exactly what he is. He admires autocrats and like attracts like, and he would like nothing more than to obtain total power with his band of followers in the United States of America. And if that was to happen... It wouldn't only be a tragedy for the USA, it'd be a tragedy for Europe. I believe that he would immediately withdraw uh, from NATO, withdraw his support for Europe and directly withdraw his, re re re, um, his support for Ukraine. And um, although Ukraine are the only people engaged in the battle against Russia, it's, um, it's a proxy war between NATO and uh, 
and Russia without any doubt at all. And the, and the NATO issue is central to this, and, and this is something that you, you're going to know better than anyone I know, uh, which is Britain's role, Germany's role, or lack of role, um, and then you've got France and the rest, and really there are quite a few of those countries who aren't putting in their money into what they promised to do by being part of NATO, which is to spend 2% of GDP on average every year on military it stuff and it doesn't dictate what the stuff is it's just no. spend it and germany the biggest the biggest economy in europe by far hasn't gone beyond one and a half percent of gdp in the last 10 years that really is a bit of a hole in in the problem isn't it yeah i mean the whole of nato with the exception of the usa has grown fat and flabby and um, ukraine's been a real punch in the nose and it's woken people up uh, fortunately, not too late. And um, but we've, we've still I mean, a, a lot of people who claim to be paying the two percent in Europe um, are actually just uh, playing accountancy games. I mean, the British government, for example, includes the pensions that are paid to former soldiers in that two percent, um, you know, and, and they, they play these games. But um the British Army, for example, has gone from when I joined in 1972, where it was at 175,000, to 68,000 in terms of men now. And that's not that's not just teeth arms. That's all the support arms together, which means you could put them on three banks of Twickenham Stadium. That's the whole British Army Armed Forces. And you could probably park most of the uh, materiel in the, in the centre. Um, that's how weak and pathetic it's got because of accountancy, because of governments that don't understand the serious dangers of autocratic states and bullies. And when you become weak, they will push, they will steal your resources, they will take. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a weakness that's happened because we've had relative peace for such a long period of time. And, and we have had rel relative peace for a very long time. I mean, most people... Uh, don't consider the idea of an actual big war erupting in in Europe, which may be not na naive for those those folks. What is the importance of defeating Russia? Absolutely. Um, well, I don't know how to say. It. Yeah. Absolutely crush them, and I don't mean inside Russia, but in their in their push into Ukraine. You know, the the, the Crimea. Donetsk, Luhansk, those places, is it vastly important to get them out of those places or can a some other settlement be made? Um, ben Hodges um, quite rightly says that um, the West failed in effective deterrent. Um, we and we became soft and we stopped um, being such a threat that Russia, China... Um, North Korea never had the courage to step over the border. Well, because nobody did anything about the use of chemical weapons in Syria, nobody pushed back on Georgia, nobody pushed back hard enough on Crimea, then it was only a simple case. You know, it was so predictable that uh, Putin would now try to um, retake uh, other former, other former Soviet, other former Soviet bloc states, and Ukraine was his one of choice. But he thought he could simply walk in 
in the same way that he did in Czechoslovakia in 1968, park some tanks, replace the government, shoot a few people, and then it would all be over because the West had given him every indication that they weren't going to do anything at all. And added to that, he thought that the West relied on him totally and economically for their uh, gas supplies. And, 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 those, and, those, and in, indeed, he was yeah. right in many ways because, yeah. because Germany is now really suffering economically because of that reliance on ultra-cheap natural gas. Do, do carry on. Yeah, um, you know, and he, he, he was absolutely right. Um, however... What he didn't, um, what he didn't count on was the fact that Ukraine had actually, the Ukrainians know their enemy, and they knew that it was highly likely that Russia would try something like this, and they started to become prepared for it. They started to train their troops. They started to arm their country within the limits of their budget, and um, when uh, Russia decided to drive in from Belarus and uh, go straight down a single road to Kiev. Um, they they got stopped, and they got stopped with their attempt to take over Kiev. They got stopped with their attempt to take over the airport, and uh, Ukraine fought back. And um, simply by fighting back and having that initial success, um, it boosted the Western world. It frightened the Western world, but it also boosted them to say, "Hey, hang on, we've got to, we've got to join in here. We've got to stop this." And um, you know, NATO. And Europe were inspired by the courage of the Ukrainians, the leadership of, of Vladimir Zelensky as well, um, who refused to leave the country. And um, we've been inspired by that in the last two years ever since. And it's, um, it's important for us to maintain that support because Ukraine is, uh, they're, they're, they're giving their blood and all we're being asked to do is give our treasure. And and that's that's the issue of, of giving lots of ammunition, lots of vehicles, war, war vehicles to do that. Do you think it's possible that y Ukraine managed to get back its all its territories, the the, the areas I mentioned, plus some some more? Um, but the, those are the big ones this year, and Russia walk away, or will there need to be some ceding of land to Russia? What, what are your thoughts on that? And I know that's a very tricky question, and possibly yeah. no one will predict it correctly. <coughs> but but please have a go. You're better informed than I am. Okay. Well, the first thing is clearly nobody knows what the future will bring. Um, I know that Vladimir Zelensky has adamant that he wants all the territory back pre-2014, uh, primarily Crimea. And um, if they get Crimea back, then it will be a victory for Ukraine. Whether there's some debate over the uh, the uh, Donbass and the uh, Russian-speaking peoples there and so on, you know, then maybe there's some ground for negotiation, but it's Crimea that's the vital place. But if there is not a Ukrainian victory, and we do not support Ukraine, and there is some kind of unsatisfactory settlement, it'll only be a pause until Russia comes back and takes another chunk of Europe. So um, this is a war that has to be won, and it has to be won by everybody. Now, the West has given everything they had in stock to support Ukraine, um, and they're starting to mobilize some of their industry. Um, they're starting to... Ukraine is purchasing ammunition from india and europe and the usa but they're using it in vast quantities and um you know schultz has said so um 
other people, uh, Rishi Sunak has come out quite strongly, and they've actually said, yes, look, we've got to um, we've got to upgrade our ability to produce munis- munitions for Ukraine to defeat Russia, but we've also got to um, increase our ability to defend ourselves for the future, and we've got to increase our stocks. Everything we had was gone in the first couple of months. It was given to Ukraine. All and, our and, storm shadow missiles have gone. They're all there. They're making some new ones now, but it's going to be a while before those new ones are in place. I know there is a factory outside of Newcastle upon Tyne, which is um, Geordie Land, as I like to call it. Mm. Um, that is working overtime now. It's part of uh, BAE Systems, and they're producing shells for uh, for for tanks and for artillery yep. pieces, which which is a, is a is a contribution. I would expect more of that. To, to come along now when i looked in 2014 i was at the wall street journal and i remember looking at some <laughs> topographical maps uh when crimea was invaded and um and i think that was when when that was and i and i saw no physical major natural obstacles to russia's tanks going from the um, eastern border of Ukraine, right through to the Baltic, where you have um, Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia. Is Am I correct in that, that there isn't like some massive river or mountain range in that thing that would stop anyone with a competent army? Yeah, there's uh, there's lots of barriers. A, there's the Dnipro, um, you know, this massive river that runs across the whole country. Um, secondly, there's the mud in the autumn and the spring. Thirdly, there's um, the high technology um, of the Ukrainian armed forces. Uh, added to that, you've got the ability to lay mines uh, very, very quickly with artillery. So you can actually fire shells now that lay mines. Uh, tank warfare is not the same as it used to be in the Second World War. It's not even the same as it was in the Gulf War. This is a completely different era. Um, this is the drone war, if we want to put a title on it. It's um, drones have brought a new um, set of eyes into the whole situation, a new dimension of war. And with technology, nothing now, can, nothing that can be seen can move without being struck by smart munitions flown straight onto the target. You don't fire 50 shells to hit one tank, you fire one shell. And that's uh, an, an enormous difference. And that's where uh, U- little Ukraine is finding it has a, it's holding its own ground against big fat Russia. It's it certainly is holding its ground, and there's some very very brave people in Ukraine doing really quite amazing things. Now you've been writing about this war since the the beginning of it, and that seemed to bring forth your most recent book, which is Slava <laughs> Ukraine. Who dares shares, and the who dares shares is obviously uh, a bit of a twist on the motto of the SAS, which is "Who dares wins," which I always yes. think is a fantastic motto. Um, why did you decide to publish it in a book? Were, were you getting the demand demand for that, and and is it just what you had on LinkedIn, or is it more? Well, I I I, I write predominantly on LinkedIn almost every day. It's um it's a format where it's a forum where you actually. Uh, get people who will actually read to the last line uh, rather than just the headline of voice and opinion. So you get a, you, you get a quite, a, quite a good readership there. And uh, people love the common sense that comes out rather than the um, rhetoric and the ridicule um, that is uh, common with other social media uh, forums. Um, 
about just before um, you, uh, Russia invaded, um, I was um, writing on social media in a very frustrated way because there was 100,000 Russian troops sitting on the border of Belarus who were clearly and obviously, from my perspective, about to invade. And uh, the British media was talking about Boris's Christmas party. The Australians were talking about uh, Djokovic being extradited. And everybody in the USA was talking about uh, the former president and his attempted coup. And nobody was uh, paying attention to the fact that this terrible situation was about to uh, unravel. And when it did, um, I started to write about it every day on LinkedIn and uh, started to get at one point had a million and a half readers a week. And then some of those readers got in touch with me and said, look, you know, you should put this out as an observational diary um, because we like it. And I think, and we think it would go well. And so what I did it um, after 18 months, I collated uh, 20 months. I collated all my blogs from that period of time and edited them into um, Slava Ukraini glory to Ukraine, who dares shares and who dares shares is how I finish my blogs every single day. Oh, and I'm, I'm so it's, it's, fully it's, aware of yeah, that. It's my jingle. Yeah, it's my jingle. Your, <laughs> your writing is very clear. I mean, I, I, I write uh, a lot uh, for various newspapers. And, and like you, I wrote about the uh, potential invasion of Ukraine in de December of 2019, because it seemed uh, fairly obvious to me. And if, and if I could see it, I, I'm, I'm not surprised that that you saw that that coming. Now, you took a degree in writing in England, and you learned a lot about writing, and it really shows. H how did you find that? And would you recommend that to other people who want to become eloquent <laughs> writers like you? Um, yeah, I, I broke my neck when I was 54 years old, and uh, had to stop working. And so I needed something to um, some I needed a new direction in my life. So um, when I was 56, I managed to uh, get into Surrey University to do uh, English literature with creative writing, which wasn't too much pressure uh, with time. And it was only 20 minutes from my home. And uh, I spent the next three years um, doing the courses and um, the, I got a huge amount out of it. I mean, I'd already written my autobiography, um, uh, Fighting Scared, many years before, but that took me six years. And I wanted to be able to write books in less than six years. Um, I learned a lot. I got an awful lot out of it. Um, as a mature student, the first thing I learned was that nobody wants to sit next to their grandpa at school. Um, it wasn't cool. 95% uh, of the course was young females. So I had to be careful not to sit next to the same person two days in a row because that would have been creepy and weird. Um, <laughs> and there were lots of other things that I learned from my time there but um, you know it gave me tools it gave me skills it made me a more concise and better and clearer um, writer and I'm still learning and by doing it every single day um, I continue to improve. We, we all we all improve by, by doing more don't we you have some book recommendations on, on one of your posts on LinkedIn. And they are, to me, f fascinating because these, these are all high, very highbrow books. Um, the, the Madness of Crowds by Douglas Murray, An Ig Murray, Immigrant's yeah. Love Letter to the West, Constantine <laughs> Kissin, who I'm, who I'm a fan yeah. of because he's not only eloquent, but he's funny. And there's Peter Lloyd, Beyond Order, 12 Loose Rules for Life, um, 
Um, sorry, yeah. Peter Lloyd Beyond Order, and then Twelve Rules for Life, Jordan Peterson, Jordan and Peterson. Fascism: A Warning from Madeleine Albright, uh, and she's a very experienced uh, Secretary of State in the U.S. Why did you pick these particular books? I, I think because they they confront um, they confront autocracy, they confront uh, extremism, and they say things in a very clear and concise manner without filling pages full of statistics which will bore the hell out of a vast number of the British public. Um, only an academic who wants to cite information is going to uh, pay a huge amount of attention to statistics. It's the same when you do public speaking. Unless you're an accountant, don't stand up and start talking numbers. Tell a story. Um, Madeleine Albright was absolutely brilliant, having been a refugee from the Czech Republic, or from Czechoslovakia when she left. And, um, and she was absolutely and a very short and simple book, but uh, it reminds us of the dangers of ignoring um, the Trumps, the Putins, the Kim Jong-uns and all the other monsters that sit out there in the silence waiting for the opportunity to come forward. It's, it's, these are all very, very important books to read, and I will be getting out and ordering them one by one, and then and then reading them because I haven't read those. I've I've listened to Constantine, and I remember Madeleine Albright um, seeing her on on TV quite quite frequently. You you've written a number of books. You, you're very productive on the writing front in in the most amazing way. Would you have any advice for young writers who are thinking, oh, "That's what I want to do. I want to do that." And quite a lot of people start when they're sort of eighteen or something, and they don't have yeah. much life experience. So it, it'd be much easier for for someone with all your experience to write a book because you've been through a lot. What would you say to to younger folks? Well, the first thing is you should write because you enjoy it. Um, you should write because you want to say something. And um, it doesn't matter whether you're 66, which is what I am now, or 16, you have a life experience. So write about what you know. So if you're 16, write about being 16. Um, but you need the tools. So go out there and read what writers say and what they say about writing and uh, and listen to what they've got to say and try to get some information about the tools of writing, um, the bad habits of writing. They're very, they're very similar to the bad habits of teaching. And if you write something, um, try to um, read it back to yourself out loud and see how it sounds. Because in your head, it's not the same as it's going to sound in somebody else's head. You need to go, I mean, I'll, I'll read something twice. And then I'll put it out there and then I'll read it again and I'll find mistakes in it. <laughs> I'll correct it. Um, it's a sculpture. It's a work of art. Um, it's it's a wonderful thing to do, but you won't make a great deal of money out of it. You'll, you know, and the people who make huge amounts of money from writing are extremely rare. Um, most of us are working writers. So I don't want, I, I mean, if, if I keep writing, maybe something will grab people's attention and it will become a, a huge bestseller at some point in the future. However, in the meantime, I'll keep writing what's important to me. I'll keep uh, improving by doing it better and better and better. Um, people uh, also get put off by the, the feel that they need a publisher. And it's a great thing to have a publisher. But if you can't find a publisher and you think that your work is worthy, and uh, you, can, you can go on Amazon KDP and self-publish, 
And if you if you market and promote and get out there on social media, perhaps you can sell a considerable number of your um, your stories, your books, without the need for somebody to approve it and uh, and you know into the bookshops. Well, I, I think you're one one million uh, views on these things every, every month or every day. Even uh, is telling you that people approve of it. But very quickly, who inspired you most on the writing front? Um, an author. Um, was there anyone? I mean, I, I, I've, I've got so many. I, I like to read um, P.G. Woodhouse, oh, Evelyn War. But was there somebody out there who's saying, "Oh, that was a a book or, or a couple of books that I really liked"? Um, there are there are quite a lot of um, writers that I've been um, inspired by. A very eclectic range. I mean, I love um, military history. Um, Stephen Ambrose, Band of Brothers. Um, I love um, Hemingway. Um, and his adventures in the Spanish Civil War, um, but also like his novels as well. Um, there's, uh, I, I tend to read about five books at a time, so there's many. I mean, I read the um, the speeches of um, a Barack Obama, of Obama's wars about his conflict with uh, David Petraeus, who I also admire highly. Um, you know, there are there are so there are so many. Uh, Ken Wharton. And his writings about the the conflict, the troubles of Northern Ireland, uh, Simon Sabag Montefiore, um, you know that I could I just just keep going on with so many wonderful, fantastic writers. One of the ones I've just been finishing reading his novels are from 1957, which a great Welsh writer called Alexander Cordell, um, Song of the Earth, Rape of the uh, Fair Land, um, um, yeah, autobiographies like Eric Idle, so eclectic. Um, you, know, oh, just, you, you are, you are obviously on. a literary <laughs> omnivore as well as a heroic <laughs> warrior. Thank you very much, Robin Horsfall, a, a, a soldier, a commando, an SAS uh, operative, and lots and lots of other things. Thank you very much. This is Constable Confidential. I'm Simon Constable, and that's it.